Welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into an opportunity. I'm Vincent Herringer. Every week I talk to entrepreneurs, investors and experts about what they're doing to solve the climate crisis and get New Zealand down to zero emissions by 2050 or sooner. This Climate Business is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Transport represents almost half of CO2 emissions in New Zealand, and in Auckland it's higher at 67%. After agriculture with our burping cows, transport is the most important sector to decarbonise. Yet the just-published 10-year plan for Auckland Transport predicts a 6% increase in emissions by 2031. Critics have called the plan baffling, at odds with the Council's commitment to halve emissions by 2030. The report is one of many transport policy documents up for discussion, all promising to lower emissions and shift us out of cars and trucks into feet, bikes and public transport. To explain what's going on and why transport planning seems so contradictory and what still needs to be done, I'm joined by Paul Winton from 1.5.org and a regular contributor to our show. Good morning, Paul. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Vincent. Well, there has been such a flurry of pub, uh, policy announcements and green papers uh, and drafts and submissions around transport and climate change so far this year, and that's a not even mentioning the Climate Change Commission. I imagine you've been very busy, Paul. <laughs> it's very easy to get whiplash in this at the moment. So the amount of content being created and thrown across desks is massive. And in many cases, that content, though it should be kind of aligned, uh, often ends up telling different stories. So trying to get underneath what's going on is incredibly time consuming and uh, complex. Uh, kind of amazing that that should happen in such a small country. But um, let's get into the first one, which is this Auckland Regional Transport Plan. This is a 10-year plan for Auckland. It's developed by three agencies, uh, Wakatokotahi, uh, uh, the Auckland Council, and Kiwi Rail. Uh, so it's kind of Kiwi Rail, the government, and the council. Uh, submissions for that closed, I think, in early May. Did you submit to that, Paul? Did submit to that, yes. Excellent. Well, then you would know. Let's do the good first. What's good about this 10-year plan? It gives us an opportunity to do it right, to do it better by basically tearing it up and starting it again. So I think it shows how broken the entire system is uh, when you come up with a, a body of work. And if I just step back to very basic chronology, in 2018, the dying days of 2018, the councillors signed up to the C40 Cities Initiative and said that they would reduce emissions by 50 to 60%. And if you fast forward a couple of years to the middle of last year, all of the councillors signed off on a 50% reduction across the region with a really cracking uh, proposal by sector, for example, 65% reduction in stationary energy by 20. 2030, 64% reduction in transport by 2030, really good specificity that people could then work on for the region. And then six months later, uh, the RLTP, which seeks to actually bring that thing to life, comes out and says, we've got a cracking plan for you, 
and it's a six percent increase in emissions. And, <laughs> now, and just just it, explain it, that it could acronym. Not be more broken. <laughs> Let's just explain that acronym RLTP. That's the. Tell us what that the, acronym means. Yeah, original land transport plan. Uh, so it, it's the bones of a plan. Well, it's actually quite a lot of detail. It follows on from a whole bunch of other four-letter acronyms, but in <laughs> essence, gives life uh, to how the actors in play, which is the council, Auckland Transport, and Waka Kotahi, and also Kiwi Rail, uh, will actually deliver transport for Aucklanders over the next decade. And it's a big deal. It's a 30-ish billion dollar uh, pot. So you, know, you would think if you were spending that, you'd do so in a way which was aligned with the intent of the country, and clearly aligned with the intent of the council, which has shown a great leadership position. And so your point is that uh, it's not aligned. In, in what way is it not aligned with that uh, commitment to emissions reduction that you first talked about? It's, I mean, this is really the stuff of comedy shows. So if I just bring out the, the bare bones, Council's body of work said we need to reduce emissions by 64%. And... Uh, then the plan came out and said we're going to increase it by 6% and we're hoping the government will come to the party and maybe make it a little bit better. Um, so in short, it does nothing. In fact, it goes in the opposite direction to what the councillors have been working for two and a half years to develop. And, and I think going back to your earlier point, you know, what's good about it, it's good because it is highlighting the absolute shambles that is transport planning at the moment. And if the <laughs> process can be run through and can deliver from such a clear leadership position with high specificity, can deliver such an, an, a frankly embarrassing body of work, then clearly we need to go back and do something very differently. So I think this now gives us license to look underneath and say the system is really broken. Let's figure out how we can do it better. Okay, well, look, in their defence, I'm going to read you some of the things that I've picked up in that plan that seem pretty good. Uh, obviously, the completion of the city rail link, good. Shifting tens of thousands of people every day. I'll, I'll, I'll com permission to comment on this as we go? <laughs> uh, go on, then. So I think it is good, and it's being positioned as a climate story, which it's not. So $5 billion worth of spend for the CRL well, maybe with a completely full CRL by 2030, reduce emissions by 1% if you hold your breath the right way. Whereas we need to reduce our emissions by 64% and our population is growing by a quarter over the next decade. So it's a great citywide long-term project, but let's not confuse it with a climate or emissions reduction project. All right. Uh, well, let me go through the list. Thank you. Um, 200 kilometres of cycleways. That silence begs me to comment. So 200 kilometres <laughs> is great yes. for one yes. year's investment. It's roughly what we need in a year. If we're to take cycling seriously, we need to be rolling out roughly 150 kilometres of safe, active corridors per year for the next decade. Mm -hmm. what, what's so that good, good direction, on? not enough. Uh, so, so that would allow you to get to roughly a quarter to 30% of the roads covered would, in Auckland uh, would be able to be cycled in a safe manner. 
bus lanes, more bus lanes, better connections, also um, separation of busways from uh, the main transport routes. So you're not going to get buses snarled up in traffic. Great. Sounds good. Great. <laughs> but not enough, not great enough. Is your well, point. I think all um, of these things you have, the, the, and, and this is the problem, is that we're confusing direction of travel with scale of movement. Uh -huh. And, you know, CRL is a great project. It is great that we're putting more busways in. And it is great that the light rail is being worked through. Like, these are great citywide initiatives that will make us the city we want to be. And they don't even touch the sides on climate emissions. So even with all of that, and that represents a circa $30 billion spend, we're still saying that our emissions are growing. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's not enough to say that I'm giving you some good projects. We need to look at the basic requirement of the transport system a decade from now in Auckland, and it needs to be safe, needs to be healthy, needs to be equitable, and it needs to be largely decarbonised. Mm. And this plan in its entirety doesn't do it. And those elements, whilst good, are being used as a smokescreen for the gross inadequacy of the plan. Uh, the lawyers for climate action are, are threatening to take the authors of this, which I presume are those three entities, to the High Court. What's that about? And do you think they would follow through on that on that threat? Yeah. So to the second question, I mean, I wouldn't want to preempt what they the decision they will ultimately make. You know, they, as a fairly large organisation, now have to get support from their group. But I would say that there is, generally speaking, a very, very strong argument in law and a very strong sentiment amongst that community that what's proposed is so grossly at odds with what Auckland has stipulated happen, Auckland Council stipulated happen, that the directors of Auckland Transport simply cannot lawfully sign off on the RLTP. In fact, what they need to do is refuse to do so, and in doing so, probably bring about some sort of a train wreck in funding that would then force the four or five human beings, people, into one room to resolve this. Um, and it, it is resolvable if those four or five human beings get in the room with some coffee and end of day some wine. It's a really fixable problem, but we're not seeing those conversations happening. Who are those four or five individuals in your mind? Yeah, so Minister Wood, uh, Transport Minister, uh, Sir Brian Roche, the chair of Wakakotahi, Nicole Rosie, the CEO of Wakakotahi, Peter Mersey, the CEO of Ministry of Transport, uh, Shane Allison, CEO of Auckland Transport, and Adrian Young Cooper, uh, the chair of Auckland Transport. And the mayor could come along, I guess, as well. So that probably gets me up to closer to seven, does it? But I'll cater. Look, this is, this is not a lot of people that need to get together and the council under the mayor's stewardship have given very clear guidance on this and they've actually put that into law so we know what the end game is now they just need to get into a room and come up with a plan that aligns with that one of the key uh mechanisms that's been identified by shane allison when i interviewed him uh, and by auckland transport is uh congestion pricing or some sort of tax that forces people to get out of cars. And it's just anecdotally, you see it every day, Paul. You know, I ride mm. a bicycle through the city. Uh, mm. I still count eight out of 10 cars having one occupant. I still see trains zipping past largely empty, buses mm. the same. Mm. His point 
And it's a fair point, and I believe that it's just been uh, suggested by, uh, I think it's the government, that congestion pricing or some form of tax on inner city driving has to be a mechanism to force change because the, the reality is that people are still not choosing to get out of their cars, even though public transport, it's actually pretty good. You know, it's better. Mm. It's so much better now than it used to be. Cycling mm. is so much better than it used to be. It's joyful. Apart from, you know, some crazy squash points around Newmarket, it's actually a delight to, to cycle around Auckland, yet it's not. that's not enough to get people out of their cars. Is congestion pricing or some sort of mechanism like that required and is that an equitable thing to do so i think it's a really important tool in the toolkit it's been well validated overseas and there's a good experience including the second point you raised which is really important around an equitable transition so there are there are many case studies that we can lean on if we look at the transition that we need to make in transport it is large and it has to happen quickly in around a decade and to do that we're going to have to bring all of those tools both carrot and stick to the party and congestion charging will absolutely be central to that. At the moment, the cost of driving in general is just way too low. Mm. Mm. Um, and yet uh, investment, uh, to your point, um, through that plan, but also through uh, other initiatives um, uh, continue to be made. Mill Road and Peen Link being the two probably biggest spends in Auckland for increasing road traffic, um, plus the investment in car parking, which uh, sort of blows your mind, really, uh, is that uh, if, if those four or five people were to get in the room, is that the kind of project you're saying needs to be knocked on the head and that money redeployed into other modes? Yeah, I think so. What you're in short, absolutely, yes. So a number of those projects, Mill Road being the most obvious one, should be just euthanized tomorrow and that's the basis of a court case at the moment and like i think that will probably go down that path if i were a betting man uh, the more the broader comment i'd make is that what we're talking about is a fundamental transformation in the way we move around our cities the way we use land the way we use public space like roads now that is a change that has to happen fast and from a, a starting point of a car-centric sprawl-based mindset and one of the issues with those five or six people coming into the room is that many of those people are the ones that built the system we're coming from. And in many cases, there's a question, and in many industries, the disruption doesn't happen from the incumbent. It happens from other people. So I think there's a really important for, question for us to ask is, do we have the right leadership and capabilities within these organizations today to develop, design, and deliver the transformation that we need. And I would argue that we we probably don't from, in many cases, chair board level, right down through organizations. We actually have the wrong people. And therefore, it is important to get the people in the room. But in many cases, those people will just be wanting to build more roads. And therefore, you know, there's a really important, there's this really important question above this is how do we make sure that we have the right people contributing to the transformation. People that fundamentally believe in a safe, healthy and equitable future fast. That's a that's a, a, a quite a separate question from kind of infrastructure spend, isn't it? And the levers for making that change are probably sit with the electorate. Yeah, so, and by that you mean um, 
but voting voted, change yes yeah at, at, at both a local government and a um, central government a absolutely but i think this is less about at the moment the minister of transport he holds a very important role and has moved materially since the last minister of transport but what you see is the layers below that waka kotahi ministry of transport most notably who simply haven't done the work that is needed to drive decarbonisation of the transport system at the rate that science and equity demands. So they are now tuning up amazingly late to the party and they simply don't have the capabilities and in many, many cases, they don't have the belief to do it. So those people are actually not being voted in by us. They're being put in place and in many cases have been put in place by past administrations who had very different views to those that are needed for the development of the of the cities and and urban landscapes of of the next decade. Mm. I remember um, just to, as an analogy or a kind of comparison years ago, I read a study about the electrification of factories after the shift from coal and steam to electrification. It took more than forty years for that change to really be embedded into an industry, and they realised mm. that it was nothing to do with the technology; it was the management. Mm. The managers had to die or retire before the new, the benefits of the new technology were were fully deployed into factories. And I think that's that that sentiment plays out. There was a wonderful body of work published by the Economist about a year ago that talked about the same thing for same sex marriages, and it was less about a shift in views as just the death of people who didn't buy that story. And unfortunately, we don't have time to wait for the youth to take over the leadership positions. So we either need those people to step up and step up fast, or we need to either have them step out or get stepped out. And, and that's what will actually be demanded. And I think one of the ways that manifests has manifested most recently is, if you look at the work of the Climate Change Commission's um, draft recommendations of three-ish months ago, they are really stretchy. We're pushing the boat out argument was we can get to an 18% reduction by 2030. Mm. And then, you know, two weeks ago, the Minister of Transport has come out and said, oh, we think maybe we can actually get to a 31% reduction. And what we're seeing is these, these bounds are being consistently pushed further out uh, as those who are effectively impeding change are being moved to the side. Well, that's kind of good news. I mean, it's better than the reverse, isn't it? And it probably is a good moment for us to mention that there are other documents out there beyond this regional plan. Uh, one called Hikina Te Kahupara, which has just been issued by the government. It's a green paper and it's a, a thought leadership piece on how we would transition the entire transport network to a, a low carbon network. Uh, have you had a chance to read that document and how does that reconcile with what the Auckland plan is? Yeah, so it's a, look, it's great that they are issuing a thought piece on this and, and outlining where their thinking is at the moment. And there are some, some good elements underneath that. And at the risk of sounding like a stuck record, it's not enough. So if we look underneath three of these scenarios, which are the three that were developed probably for, before Minister Wood got a bit angry and asked them to do better, that talked about a roughly 20% reduction in emissions by 2030. 
their their pathway four, as they call it, allows for a circa thirty percent reduction in emissions by twenty thirty, which is is what we need to do. So, and twenty thirty is a magical point for not exceeding one point five degrees of global surface average temperatures. Mm-hmm. But even that stretch pathway four scenario at thirty percent reduction is less than half of what Auckland proposed a year ago. So Mm. what we're seeing is, uh, again, this smokescreen of a story about we're not going to stand back, we're not going to shy away from emissions reductions, we're going to make these transformative changes. But you look underneath the bonnet of what's proposed in terms of emissions reductions, and they're just not, they're simply not aligned with science and equity. Now, we need to be largely eliminating the use of petrol and diesel this decade, by the end of the decade, 80%, 90% kind of numbers. Hmm. Another interpretation of that mismatch is that Auckland Council was overly ambitious and perhaps uh, pie in the sky with its expectations of writing that uh, emissions reduction plan, the Auckland Climate Action Plan, and that now actually we're bumping up against the reality. And this is reality that we are not prepared or even economically can't afford to achieve. Yeah, so I think that, and even that, that framing, I think the, 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 the big frame here is, do we want to suffer the worst effects of climate change, uh, mass migration, wildfires, droughts, uh, extreme weather events, or do we want to transform to avoid that? And there is no end of study that tells us that the worst of climate change is going to be you know, 50 to 200 times worse in just pure economic cost, let alone the human cost, than the cost of, of doing something now. So I think it needs, this whole cost conversation needs to be framed in the context of what is the cost of actually doing nothing or not doing enough. But then take jump step down a level to the, the Auckland story. What Auckland did and what the mayor and the councillors did, which I think is, an, is an, a wonderful example of leadership, is they said, what does science demand we do? And then they said, okay, well, in actual fact, in their case, science demanded a 60% reduction for, for the region. They managed to, because of political sensitivity, ne- negotiate that down to 50% by 2030. Mm-hmm. And then they said, well, clearly that's a lot. How might we do that? And with that as their starting point, with science and equity as their starting point, and they then said, this is not going to be easy. Like, this is going to be really hard. But it's going to be less hard than the destruction that will incur, that society will incur if we do nothing. So we've got to do it. And they then outlined a, a, a bunch of paths, a bunch of actions, in quite a bit of detail that were, in their view, the least hard of paths. So I think you're absolutely right. We are now running up against the reality And we're doing that because those councillors demonstrated the leadership in both setting the target, but also setting the outline of what a plan might look like that we could work to and test around that. And it's not surprising that this is difficult. And we've waited so long to do this. It's only going to get harder. And it's going to be even harder if we have to uh, deal with the consequences of unmitigated climate change. Um, I'm going to let you loose in a minute to tell us what your plan is, but there was one more initiative that came out in January that's worth mentioning, and that was a clean car standard uh, and a 
a series of moves that are going to require more and more, um, um, I suppose, cleaner, yeah, clean, cleaner standards for newly imported cars. How important is that change? And will that, I mean, it's going to help, think, but again, is it a, yeah, is think, it a scale versus a uh, versus a direction? I think that's right. So this is, again, a great construct. New Zealand is one of the few countries in the world that has no emission standards. And what that means is if you buy a Corolla here, it just is less efficient and emits more than a Corolla in the UK, as an example. And this is because it's cheaper for those car vendors to sell their cars into the country. So we need an emission standard, and that basic construct makes a lot of sense. But in terms of the scale of the settings and the scale of change that they're proposing, it's really similar to the Labour Party's entire modus operandi in climate, which is to bring a wet tea towel, a wet tea towel to a, a bushfire. And we, we just need way, way more, way faster. And on those emissions, as an example, we need to make uh, the current versions of the Ford Ranger and the Toyota Hilux uh, illegal or price them out of the market this year. Um, and to put context on that, a Hilux in Europe, if it emitted as it does here, would carry a 30,000 euro tax on purchase on it. So we need something like that by Christmas. 30,000. That's right. So we need something like that fast. And we need that to push through such that if a car still has a petrol engine in it or diesel engine and has been brought into the country, it emits more, no more than a modern Prius. So that's the curve we need to follow. And it's nowhere near the curve that is underneath uh, that emissions standard. I saw the other day that um, the Amsterdam train system, which is you know kind of publicly owned, has banned uh, the advert ad advertising of fossil fuel cars on its network. Absolutely, and I think if we look to another industry, there's a wonderful playbook that we might lean on, and that's the cigarette cessation, smoking cessation industry. And two things that you've talked about now are banning advertising and effectively pricing and so which in cigarettes has been done by taxing and taxing and taxing and then using that money to feed back into public health initiatives seeking support for smoking cessation mm -hmm. so we really have a wonderful playbook where we just need to and, and the other one that that was done very elegantly in uh smoking cessation was at some point in time uh, you were no longer allowed to smoke in bars and of course, all the bar owners thought that would lead to the immediate demise of all bar, all bars everywhere. Yeah. But funny enough, there are still bars in New Zealand today. And this, the parallel to that is a form of congestion charging or low or no emission zones. So you just can't go places if you have high emissions vehicles, or and, and that includes parking. You know, there is no parking in the city, for example, for cars that emit more than 100 grams per kilometer. Uh, so you can't take your highlights into the city. Um, and we need to get those carbon bombs out of our cities. And those sort of tools have been well, well proven in that adjacent industry. We could learn a lot from that. It's a very interesting analogy because the, I remember the howls of protest around that shift and how difficult it was for so many people to make a transition. And now, of course, we look back and we think, were we mad? Uh, and yes. social change is difficult, isn't it? You know, I, I saw a tweet the other day about um, just reflecting on 
how bizarre it was that only a decade ago, perhaps it was 15 years ago, uh, teachers could smack children with a cane. And, um, you know, I'm old enough to remember that, that experience and, and don't look back fondly. <laughs> and I wish for a time when, you know, that could be done. Um, mm. Why is it so difficult to get this particular one through? We have some a real-life example in Onehunga has been an experiment with reducing traffic off certain suburban streets. Uh, and the guy, the local body uh, councillor, put in charge of leading that campaign, Peter McGlashan, has has virtually had to, well, the, the trials ended because it was so badly uh, received and also the abuse that that guy has, has experienced is ex extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary and, and completely mm. unwarranted in a democratic uh, society. That little incident highlights the battle out there on the roads. Why is this so difficult, Paul? Well, I think one of the reasons this is so difficult is that we're not yet seeing the air cover from the leaders that is needed for people like Peter, whose work has been amazing, to deliver on, on the transformation that society needs. And if I draw an analogy back to cigarette smoking, if we imagine a scenario where in order to get smoking out of our bars, advocates had had to go from bar to bar to bar to convince the bar owner that it was a great idea. Now, the cost of doing that and then to enforce it, the cost of doing that unresourced would have been you know, unimaginable. It would never have happened. What actually happened is the public health scientists came in. They said, you've got to do this. The government swept in with policies that support it, that were then enforced by both public health and ultimately uh, legal, uh, legal measures. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing anywhere near that air cover here. It's being left to loan advocates to drive this change without the resources they need. So mm. it, it is hard in the same way that these shifts in smoking are hard, but what we're not seeing yet is the air cover from Minister Wood, uh, from Waka Kotahi, from Auckland Transport, from the Mayor of Auckland. Uh, Peter McGlashan should have had air cover from all of those people, and he didn't. So those people have really failed uh, in a duty of care to the transformation that they've actually set up. Hmm. It's back to your leadership issue. Okay, well, in the minutes remain, tell us what you would do uh, if you were given the keys to this kingdom. Mm. What has to happen for you? So one of the sort of lesser known and slightly nerdy actors in this game is the Climate Change Commission. And their role in all of this is to provide objective recommendations to government uh, that government uses to then set and is obliged to use to set a 15 year out to 2035 carbon budgets for the country, including sort of policies underneath that will support it. Unfortunately, what's happened is the Climate Change Commission has chosen to uh, set extremely low reductions targets versus global science and equity. And as a result, it makes it much harder for other agencies to take a leadership position. Now, if the hmm. supposed expert in the space is saying, no, you don't actually need to do that much, then it's very, it's a bit harder for, for example, the ministers of transport or energy to then hmm. advocate doing a lot more. So were I supreme ruler, I would, uh, and this has been the basis of my submission, and I suspect many of the 15,000 submissions they received, please give us budgets 
that are aligned with global science and that are aligned with global equity as a bare bones requirement. And uh, what remains to be seen now is whether they take that feedback and come back with Mm -hmm. targets that we can actually stand behind in a couple of weeks. If they don't, um, then there is a very good chance that we will see legal action against either the government, depending on their response, or the Climate Change Commission. And I think that the outcome of that decision will be the most pivotal for every industry in New Zealand this year. Hmm. When is that uh, document due from the Climate Commission? So it's due within weeks, and uh, the government has to acknowledge it. Uh, it doesn't have to have to publicly comment uh, on it at the time. Really, the, the key points in time this year are COP26, where all of the countries come together and upgrade their promises from the Paris Accord of 2015. Mm. If the Prime Minister had to take the current recommendations of the Climate Change Commission to that um, event in Glasgow, it should have to slink in the back door and slink back out. They're simply embarrassing in global, on, on a global basis. And then six weeks after that, uh, the government has to set, a, set out their 15-year decarbonisation plan. So that's kind of the, the timeline for this year, which will be yeah, could end up being the, the largest transformation in our society and economy that we have seen since, well, COVID uh, or uh, World War Two. Hmm. Uh, exciting times. Um, thank you, Paul. You know, you, you make it easy to understand, which is quite an achievement. Uh, so well done and thanks for um, your advocacy. Thank you. And thank you for giving us a voice, Vincent. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. I hope you enjoyed the programme. There are more episodes as well as notes and blogs on our website, thisclimatebusiness.com. I'm Vincent Herringer, and if you know someone who deserves to be interviewed on our show, email me, vincent at thisclimatebusiness.com, or find me on Twitter, vherringer, that's two E's, one R. Meanwhile, I'll be back same time next week, and no hurrah.